It's, um, we don't find it in the Bible, but it's a good thing to, to honor mothers and fathers and to take a day aside for that purpose. So, and uh, we thank you for the words we heard this morning about real fatherhood and what it actually means. I wanted to speak again this morning on a um, series which I started back in January 2021, and that's on the Beatitudes. And um, we've covered the first four. I want to go on to number five today. And the last one we did was back in May, which was blessed are those that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. But uh, let's, let's pray before we do that. So, Lord, we, uh, we want to ask, Lord, for your blessing on your word this morning. It is your word. We do pray this morning that um, your word, Lord, that we be attentive to it, that we draw from it, and uh, that it uh, builds us up, and that we leave here strengthened and encouraged and um, full, of you, full of you, Lord, for the week that lies ahead. We know, Lord, in Psalm 138, it says that you've magnified your word above your name, and we hold your word, Lord, in, in reverence here, and, and we want to handle it correctly, so to help me in that manner this morning, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you've probably forgotten what I covered in the first four Beatitudes. As I said, I start, started to speak on these back in January 2021. So um, let's do a quick recap. It's a good thing to recap from time to time. There's so much in the Beatitudes. So I first spoke on blessed are those that mourn. And um, more recently on blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. I hope to get to the all nine, but the way this world is, as we heard this morning, you know, the Lord may come back in the meantime. But we did say in, in studying these Beatitudes that they are paradoxical, and that is they're seemingly absurd or self-contradictory. And I, I mentioned, you know, how, for example, how can it be blessed to be poor? Or how can it be blessed to be in mourning? And so on. And we covered that the Spirit, it's the Spirit of God that outworks these Beatitudes in the believer. So it's not something we can attain in human effort. It's, 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 it's the outworking of a born-again believer who's followed the, the correct steps. So when you examine these Beatitudes, you'll also find that the emphasis is not on talents. It's not on the abilities of a Christian or the abilities of the individual, but it more concerns their character and what's on the inside. So they're a model of Christian character. And we remember this morning, we think of that scripture, that the Lord looks on the heart. So the Christian walker begins with poverty of spirit. And we covered that this meant that we're broken and humble enough to realize they were absolutely lost, but for the grace of God. And there's nothing we can bring to God that can earn us our salvation. This is all basic stuff, of course, but it's good to just to reiterate and to, to cover it again because, you know, in humans, we let these things perhaps sink to the back of our minds. But that's a fact. There was nothing we could do in our own strength to be saved. And there's no short-circuiting that first step. We cover that, that we must realize that we're a sinner. We must, we must hear the gospel preached correctly and realize that we've broken God's law and that we are a sinner, and that we are correctly, um, it would be correctly just, and that we should have been destined to hell. We should have received punishment for what we've done. 
but there's consequences to our actions. So you can see then, if you think of those words, that salvation is not just a prayer. It's not just leading somebody in a, in a prayer. And um, perhaps that happens too much nowadays. We think we said a prayer a few years ago, and that means we're saved. But um, that's not the case. We have to go through these steps, and we have to be poor in spirit. That's the first step in order to be actually truly saved. And that, um, you know, when we think about it, perhaps that's the explanation why there's so many false conversions and, and Christians by name who are not really Christians by, you know, demonstration or by action or by how they live. So true repentance also includes a genuine mourning about our sin and a realization that it's an offense to a holy and a righteous God. And we read Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, that godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. So we want to choose life and not death. And uh, we can see that the repentance and salvation, they're not separable. They work hand in hand. And a Christian who cannot mourn, you know, if you can't mourn, if you don't feel, you know, we all slip up from time to time, but if you can't mourn over your sin or feel sorrowful for what you've done or realize that you've fallen short of the mark, that's not a good place to be because I think you can become callous or hard-hearted if you follow that path. So, you know, that's an important thing. We cover the meek Christian. He's the one who's been broken before God. And we, we, we cover that meekness as the evidence that we've been tamed by God. And that can be telling me of your temper, your aggression, your self-assertion, your ungodly impulses or those sort of uh, passions which are not, not good. All of those things have to be tamed. We learn that the meek Christian he doesn't think of himself too highly, nor is he conceited, nor does he think of himself too lowly in false humility. So he has a balanced, a balanced um, humility before the Lord. And they've submitted themselves to the Lord. Also, we've seen that the meek, no matter how offensive they see others around them, they see them as sinners in need of salvation. So we don't um, take it out on other sinners. We don't become enemies of them in that sense. But we fear for them. And um, we see them as sinners, ones who are lost like we were once who need salvation. And then our last Beatitude, we covered the hungry Christian. Now, most people believe that are basically good. And if you don't believe that, go out in the streets and ask the question. And most people, they want others to know that they are good. And we have a term nowadays, virtue signaling. And maybe perhaps you could call it self-righteousness. And it's that desire or that um, intention or that, that drive in a person to want to justify himself or to be seen as right before others. And it hasn't changed. It was the same with the, the Pharisees in, in the, the old days as well. So that same drive is also at the heart of man's religions, doing things perhaps to win God's approval. You know, I came from the Catholic system. In the Catholic system, you know, you had to do things like monthly sodalities. You had to uh, do the stations of the cross. You had to, to uh, go on pilgrimages. In fact, I can remember even 
And it was only a few weeks ago, actually, in Ireland, they have an, an annual climbing of this mountain in the west of the country, and they do it in bare feet. Or you might see some of the, um, the Muslims flagellate themselves, some of the particular branches of, Muslim, of the Muslim creed or faith, you know, beat themselves just to, uh, to prove that they're, that they're right before God. You know, it's, 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 um, those things don't achieve anything. Pilgrimages, whether you pay the zakash in Islam or you do the hajj or whatever, they, they're not what saves you. So we also covered that man, not all of man's righteousness is bad, that it's a good thing to be above reproach. It's a good thing to speak the truth. It's a good thing to be honest with your employer, to be honest in your dealings and, uh, and uh, such like. But it's clear that that type of righteousness does not save the individual. And um, we found that biblical righteousness, that's doing what is right in the sight of God. So righteousness, biblical righteousness, it's an attribute of God that man can't achieve in his own efforts. You know, and if we realize that, what a lot of trouble we'd save ourselves. So in spiritual terms, a hunger and thirst for righteousness and the things of God that's the sign of a real believer. And we also learned that the Beatitudes, they were the opposite of what the world values. The world system puts an emphasis on materialism, seeking pleasure, self-assertion, everything is self, self, self. And the Beatitudes, they show the order of the development of the true Christian. And um, we just had that, that picture. They're, they're like a ladder or they're like the steps that are leading up that narrow road that leads into life. So, so far we've covered blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Today we're going to have a look at blessed are the merciful. And again, we just want to have a quick look at the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount begins with those 12 verses which are known as the Beatitudes. And they are some of the most revolutionary and perhaps studied words in Scripture. Many people have quoted them and used them. And they are words that have... Um, they turn the philosophies of the world upside down, or perhaps right side up, if you want to look at it that way. And they also, they're an introduction into what's the, the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, which runs from chapters 5 to chapter 7 in Matthew. As I said before, I like the writing that's in red. Anything that's in red, you, 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 you certainly won't go wrong on it. The thought crossed my mind when, when, when putting the words down on paper. You know, when we think of these, when we think of the Beatitudes, when we think of the, the wonderful Sermon on the Mount, you know, how cheesish and how short-sighted is a church that toys with, with you know, gender ideology or, or wokeness or any of those things, you know, that if they'd only return to uh, what's in the scriptures and to, to uh, some of what we're looking at this morning here, they'd be on the right track. And of course, it also applies to us today as believers. So, so let's again, let's have a look at the Beatitudes and go back again to chapter 5, verse 1 to 12. And we'll just read through them and um, we'll pay special attention to verse 7. So he opens up and it says there, and seeing the multitudes... He went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Amen. So looking again at verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The fifth beatitude. Now I found that mercy is a very, very big topic in the Bible, and there's many different aspects. We quote it from Scripture often, and we sing it in songs here often. And one just came to my mind, which is, Mercy there was great, and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Calvary is a place of mercy. Anyone here who can remember back their school days, who did the Merchant of Venice, and I remember doing it 50 years ago, even someone like Shakespeare, when he penned words, had an appreciation. If anybody remembers the, the famous scene from Act 4, Scene 1 from the Merchant of Venice, and the, the words are, the quality of mercy is not strained, or not constrained, or to be limited in modern English, it dropped it as a gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blessed him that gives and him that takes. Not biblical words, but still true words. So mercy is great, and it's very important. Jesus told the Pharisees that they were not to neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. So a good place to begin is to ask the question, what actually is mercy? Now the dictionary gives this definition. It says that mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone to whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. And if you think of the applications of the word mercy, you'll find that it's used probably a little bit further than that definition. But here's an illustration I found that I think yeah, it captures a good picture of mercy. And it goes as, as follows. A mother once approached Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son. The emperor replied that the young man had committed a certain offense twice and justice demanded death. But I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, the woman cried, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. Well then, the emperor said, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. So if you apply that to the Christian, we deserve eternal punishment for our sin. And we do not deserve mercy. But God in his love has shown us the ultimate mercy. And we remember the words of Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all come from the same place. We're all born into sin, and we all needed salvation. And we wouldn't have had that salvation without the mercy of God. Perhaps you've heard before 
this definition that grace is getting what we do not deserve and mercy is not getting what we do deserve. In Titus 3, verse 5, it says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. God was first to show mercy to us and there's an expectation that we in turn should be willing to extend mercy to others. Now we should distinguish between mercy, kindness, compassion and some of the other offshoots. Feeding the hungry perhaps, that's an example of compassion, but it's not necessarily mercy in the full sense of the word, although it may be uh, described as merciful. In terms of the other Beatitudes, the fifth Beatitude, it's a bit different to the first four. When we covered blessed are the poor in spirit, we realize what our real condition is before God. Blessed are they that mourn. Not only do we realize our real condition, but we mourn and sorrow. In fact, it should drive us or give us a, give us a willingness to repent. And blessed are the meek. The meek have been broken before God and don't think highly of themselves. We realize in our meekness that we're, all we are is but just saved sinners. For those that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, after poverty, mourning, and meekness, the Christian then has a desire or hunger for righteousness, not to impress other men, but to please God. If you look at the first four Beatitudes, they concern good and necessary changes in the heart of the believer. In the first three, the emptiness of the heart is expressed and it's followed by the fourth in a hunger for righteousness. Having this godly righteousness will outwork in mercy, in purity, purity of heart, and in peacemaking. If you think about it, it's similar to the Ten Commandments. There's two tablets of commandments. You have the first set that are directed towards God and the second set that are directed towards our, our fellow humans. And again, we see the paradoxical nature and that to be merciful in terms of the secular worldview is considered by many or most to be a show of weakness. Mercy relates to mankind, not necessarily so in the animal kingdom and if you think perhaps if you've watched any of these wildlife shows do you ever see a praying animal or a hunting animal showing mercy to his prey? It doesn't work that way. Now we naturally have a sense of justice that opposes mercy and when we hear reports of terrible crime, we want to see justice done. In fact, we'd be infuriated if there's no punishment or if the sentence is too lenient. That's human nature. If you think back to David, you remember David when he was confronted by Nathan. Nathan told him the story about the rich man, how the rich man stole the poor man's lamb. And David said that that man deserved to die, and that he should make a restoration four times for what he took. That's the instant human reaction when we don't see justice done. But like many things in Scripture, there's a tension between the need for justice and the granting of mercy. And there's a Scripture I like, I've always liked, which I think um, demonstrates this very, very well. And that's Psalm 85, verse 10. that says there, where mercy and truth are met together, and righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And you can meditate for quite a while on those words. 
But those four attributes, if you think about it, they were all broken in the Garden of Eden because we had truth, we had mercy, we had peace and um, righteousness. But they were shattered when sin entered the world. Now, there's no guarantee of instant repayment or we don't gain anything necessarily in the immediate by showing mercy. In preparation, I listened to uh, David Pawson. And David Pawson told a story which I think demonstrates something that, that, that um, will stick in your mind, I believe. So he, he tells a story of a mine accident. This is in one of his uh, t- t- teaching sermons that occurred in apartheid South Africa in the days of apartheid. And there was a mine accident and one of the white mine staff, he was trapped underground. And it was a dangerous situation and nobody wanted to take the risk of trying to rescue this man. But a black miner came forward and he ended up crawling through the debris and into the cavern where this uh, white man who was unconscious was trapped. And um, he dragged him out saved his life. Now when this man finally recovered in hospital, he wanted to meet and he wanted to thank that individual for saving his life. And uh, he was brought into the ward and uh, the white man wanted to actually shake his hands and to thank him. But when he seen he was black, he refused to do it. That black man showed mercy but David Paulson, he added further, he said, consider again, if the same thing happened and that white man perhaps the following week was in a similar accident and the same situation arose where he needed to be rescued and that man went in again and did the same thing, that might be an adequate demonstration of mercy in the situation because that person didn't deserve it for the attitude he'd shown and for the, the, the gratitude which he didn't give. So are mercy and forgiveness related I believe they are. They're intertwined. Mercy can be seen as an extension of forgiveness. And forgiveness that involves the overcoming of anger and resentment. And mercy involves the withholding of harsh treatment that we perhaps have every right to inflict in a situation. But the bottom line for the Christian is they must be willing to grant both, and it's not easy. Another interesting thing about that beatitude, this fifth beatitude, that the actual blessing or the reward is the same as the outlay. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. It's mercy for mercy. Let's have a little bit of, look, a little bit of a closer look now at mercy. So it's easy in day-to-day life to forget the depth of the mercy. Uh, perhaps we had a little bit of it explained this morning here around the table the depth of the mercy that God has shown to me and you, and what in, that requires us in, in turn to do. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far had he removed our transgressions from us. In Matthew 18 verse 21, we can picture the situation here, where it says, then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him, till seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And many, many times we've heard that preached, perhaps here even. But if you look in the background of that, actually it's quite interesting. 
the Jewish background to that scripture is, and this is based on the rabbinical teaching, is that you're only obligated to forgive an individual up to three times. Do it once, forgive them twice, third time, yeah, fourth time, not doing this again. Peter then thinks he's being generous in extending it to seven. But the, the Lord, when he, when he um, says 70 times seven, you can see that as oft as your brother sing, or your sister asks for forgiveness, you must forgive. And again, it's not easy to do. Not always easy at all. You go further on then in that chapter, Jesus presents a powerful parable. And starting at verse 23 there, and again, we know this one very well. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. Again, perhaps you've heard preachers comment, that was an astronomical figure. And um, it's an indication or it's a picture of the debt that we owed God, a debt we couldn't pay. But as for much, for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Again, if you think of the situation where we stood in our sin, without mercy and without grace, that's what we deserved. We would have gone into bondage, eternal bondage. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. The Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave the debt. Again, a picture of salvation. He paid a debt he did not own. I owned the debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. Those words come to mind when I look at that verse. But what follows on then is, 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 is the lesson. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence, which was a pittance. And he laid his hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me thou what thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee. That's the exact same words that this wicked servant pleaded with the king. So it's repeated here by the, the second individual. In verse 30 says, And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the death. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto the Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou have had, had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to, be, to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. That last verse is a very, very sobering verse. You know, we can sit here and debate this morning, have discussions about salvation, and you can't do this and you can't do that, but one thing is for sure, you may be a Christian, but if you're not merciful, there's a consequence to not showing mercy. As born-again believers, we forgive and we ask for forgiveness and we to keep short accounts. 
so that there's no rift or separation, you say horizontal from us to men or vertical from us to God. So it's a heavy verse and one that I think that, um, you know, as believers, when we read it, um, it can weigh on us. So what are some practical evidences of mercy? This is just a few, but it's not limited. We don't seek revenge on others who have done harm against us, and we don't hold a grudge. The world says, don't get mad, get even. But the scripture in Romans 12, 19, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Now, if we're honest, that's not very easy, is it? The first thing you want to do when somebody does wrong to you is strike back. But we're not supposed to. We have a loving attitude towards those who have transgressed against us. You can think of Richard Wormbrand. Have you ever seen that, that um, film on his life? How he prayed nightly in his prison cell for, for his tormentors. And he was severely beaten and severely mistreated. Romans 12, verse 20, 21. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Do not, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. We're even to give, forgive those who sin in ignorance. And we do this if we want to be Christ-like. We want to be imitators of Christ. And we can think of the example of Jesus on the cross when he said in Luke 23, 34, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. We even have to forgive those who haven't asked for our forgiveness. Again, that's not very easy to do, is it? The parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 is, I believe, an example of what it means to walk the walk and to talk the talk, as they say nowadays. If you look at the lawyer in that account, and it's a bit like the, uh, the, rich, um, the rich young ruler who came to the Lord, similar sort of thing. He was uh, hiding behind his religion and behind the law, and he justified himself. You know, he asked the question, you know, what must I do, etc. And he justified himself by asking the question to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And perhaps he didn't expect the answer he got because there was another parable, and I won't read it, but the parable of the, uh, the Good Samaritan. And Jesus asked the question in the end, and we know the story there about the, the, the three individuals who, who um, encountered that man who was beaten and robbed and left naked on the highway. You know, the, the, the Levite and the priest, they, they walked by. But it was the Samaritan who was the enemy of the, uh, the, the Jews, effectively in those days, that rendered assistance and help. And he made it very clear to, the, to this gentleman, this lawyer, that, that that's what was important. That was the important thing, the one who showed mercy. You know, there are many, many characters in the Bible you could bring up under the topic of mercy. And um, perhaps you could have a look at David. David's often quoted as, a, as an example that uh, rings true or resonates with a lot of the, uh, the things we see in our lives. And, and um, you know, he was a man of many, many flaws. You know, we think about what he'd done. He was 
guilty of conspiracy. He was treacherous. He was, he, he was a murderer in the sense that he, that he um, conspired and led to the, you know, directly led to the, the murder of, of, of uh, one of his best men. He was an adulterer. He tempted God in, in, in uh, having a census that led to the death of many innocents perhaps around him. Why does God say he was a man after his own heart? And, uh, you know, there's no doubt that David wanted to obey the Lord and that he had great faith. And we see that reading through the Psalms. He loved God's word. He was thankful. He was repentant when he needed to be. But I think he could add mercy to the list. There's, there's, there are several examples of David being a man of mercy. And, uh, you know, you could think of, of several I'll put down here. You know, that he spared the life of Saul, who was his tormentor, on two different occasions because he knew that Saul was the Lord's anointed. He mourned after the fact. You know, we know that Absalom had died at the time and was killed for his son, Absalom. Even though Absalom tried to overthrow him and, uh, you know, as a son did, did uh, terrible things against him. And he was berated and scolded by Joab for um, having that attitude, you know, of feeling sorrowful and for, for Absalom. Even this character Shimei, who was um, jeered him and, and uh, abused him, he showed mercy to Shimei, even despite what his uh, comrade Abishai said. You know, showing mercy can bring you a lot of criticism. It might make you look weak from the world's point of view. But it, um, it's what pleases the Lord. He showed kindness to, um, I hope I pronounced his name correctly, Mephibosheth, because of Jonathan. In those times when somebody assumed or the, the, the throne, one of the first things they would do is wipe out the, anybody who was a threat to, the, um, to his power or position. But he didn't. He showed mercy. And then we have the promise Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So we must be merciful to obtain mercy. And it's a great blessing to obtain mercy. Scripture says, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. You know, it's a principle in Scripture that a person reaps what they sow. And we see that in Galatians chapter 6, 7, and 8. If you're not willing to show mercy, as has been shown to you, then you're going to reap accordingly from others. You know, again, the words of James are very sobering. Being merciful is a weighty matter, the scripture says, and should be given consideration. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's more important to be merciful than to be judgmental. And, uh, you know, just having the correct doctrine and having all your ducks in a row, perhaps, it's not enough without displaying these beatitudes, mercy being one of them. Just a couple of conclusions and, and, and closing thoughts just on this topic of mercy. It's a fact sometimes that justice and mercy have to be mingled together. You know, it's important. and uh, we, we have courts of law. We have, we have uh, in some countries, you have execution. You know, and, and the Bible says that these things, governments are, they're, um, they're, their authority is given by God. It's important that justice is seen to be done. You know, in exercising justice, we're bearing witness that God is a God of justice. And in showing mercy, we're bearing witness that God is a God of mercy. 
And the question arises, how do you get the balance right? The only answer I can think of is to actually be walking close to Jesus and to be, to be listening, because every situation is different. To be merciful makes you vulnerable. As I said before, you'll get criticism, you may not be appreciated, and you may be hated as resent and resented as Jesus was. Jesus went about doing good, he was compassionate, and he looked on the people and he, he felt mercy and great compassion for the lost situation. But it didn't get him any, um, any uh, praise or, or, or um, acclaim from the uh, religious authorities at the time. He was vilified, he was criticized, and eventually he was put to death. It's interesting in reading Paul's words in Romans chapter 1, and we see there that those who willfully reject the truth, and that truth includes God's love and mercy, can be given over to evil. And furthermore, if you look at verse 31 of that chapter, it says that the unmerciful are named among that group. So mercy is a very important thing. And to be unmerciful, I think, puts you in a, in a, a risky situation. We need to be merciful. Just finish with another little story. And everybody here perhaps has heard of Corrie Ten Boom. And she was an amazing woman of the Lord. And she had an incredible testimony. And uh, this account here, this is true. She was once speaking in Germany and a man came forward. And perhaps some here know, know this account. And the title was, I forgave the man who was responsible for my sister's death. And it goes as follows. Suddenly they are face to face. Corey Ten Boom and the camp guard. Corey had just given a speech on the theme of forgiveness. As the people leave, he comes forward, walking forward. Then Corey sees who this man is. This man is partly responsible for the death of her sister. He extends his hands to her. What a beautiful message, Fraulein. And Corey freezes. Now what? Then he goes, jumps back into a little bit of the background of a story and says, let's go back in time for a moment. Corey Ten Boom and her family lived in Harlem. Her father, Casper, owned a watch store in the heart of Harlem. And Corey became one of the first qualified female watchmakers in the Netherlands. And when World War II broke out, their house above the watch store became a transit house. It was a temporary shelter for Jews and members of the resistance. And more than 800 people found temporary shelter in their house. And they had an extra wall placed in the bedroom, creating a small hiding place, hence the name The, the Hiding Place. And it wasn't without danger. And the Ten Boone family, they ended up paying a high price. And ultimately, they were betrayed. They were betrayed by a, a man named Jan Vogel. And um, he came, and he, he tricked her, and he came back then with, with um, reinforcements. And they ransacked the house. But they didn't find those who were hiding. They actually did find um, food vouchers, more food vouchers than she, they were entitled to have. But the bottom, the, the, the bottom line was that they ended up being um, imprisoned. And they ended up in a camp in Germany. And that camp was um, a very cruel place. And it says here that their father, Casper, he died in captivity. And when, after being in captivity in this camp, Corey received a letter. And behind the stamp on the letter, it said, all the watches are safe. Or in other words, all the people in the hiding place are safe. Anyway, they, this camp, Ravensbrook, they were treated very, very poorly there. 
And it's in that place that uh, she met this German uh, guard or prisoner, of, or prisoner of war guard. And he was stuck in her memory. Because the man who stood before her brought back the memories of the piles of dresses on the floor and the naked people walking past the guards, the face of her severely emaciated sister, Betsy. And her beloved sister, she didn't survive. She died in, in December 1944. Then a few days later, Corrie, she got out by accident because of a clerical error. So with all that background in mind, she's standing there before this gentleman, and it says, I feel like my blood is freezing. Corrie later recounts, there suddenly stands a man before me, co-responsible for the slow, horrible death of my dear Betsy, and he dares to ask me for forgiveness. And she was preaching and giving a, a talk on forgiveness, so how we're tested on our words. All those beautiful sermons about forgiveness, but now I have to forgive myself, and I can't. The man held out his hand to Corrie, but she wouldn't take it. Forgiveness is not an emotion, it's an act of the will. I pray softly to Jesus. I don't want this. You have to help me. Then I realize forgiveness is not an emotion. It's an act of the will. The feeling is not there, but I can move my hand. Almost mechanically, I place my hand in his, and then something extraordinary happens. I suddenly feel a warm wave and through my body, from my shoulder through my arm to our hands. I have to cry, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. There we stood, the camp guard and the prisoner, for a long time we held hands. Never before have I experienced the love of God so deeply. Forgiveness is releasing the prisoner just to discover that I was the one imprisoned. So we see there, mercy and forgiveness, they're intertwined, and we have to extend them. And we don't, we damage ourselves. We imprison ourselves effectively. So we thank the Lord, thank the Lord for his word this morning, and... Uh, Let's exercise mercy. Let's learn from, from what he says in the Beatitudes. And let's exercise mercy and forgiveness as we have to do many times from day to day in this life. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you bless this word unto our hearts. And um, thank you, Lord, if there's anyone here, Lord, who's, who's perhaps struggling, Lord. I don't know, perhaps, Lord, their, their father was not a good father or, or they suffered at the hands of someone where it's um, very difficult for them to to exercise mercy and to extend mercy and forgiveness. I pray, Lord, that you touch their hearts, Lord, and uh, search all of our hearts today, Lord. If there's anyone, Lord, that we are holding bitterness against or resentment or haven't forgiven or haven't shown mercy to, soften our hearts, Lord, and help us to do that, Lord, because that's your will. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think we're having tea and coffee today, although many of my people...